What do you love about music? To begin with, everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I are going to welcome jazz rock innovators Powerhouse Sound. Plus, we'll review albums by Vampire Weekend and Van Hunt, and I'll add a track to the Desert Island Jukebox. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. We have been reporting the story for seven years on Sound Opinions. CD sales are down yet again. Another terrible year for CD sales. But what does that mean for the album? The group of songs put together to be heard as a piece. Interesting take on this uh, issue in a recent Wall Street Journal online column from Jason Fry in which he talks about where the CD is going, where the album is going, and what the fate of the album is. Let's go to Jason. Jason, welcome to uh, Sound Opinions. Hey, thanks for having me. Give us your short take on, on where you feel the album is these days and where it's going. The CD is quite clearly dying. Um, I mean, earlier this month, uh, Nielsen SoundScan came out with these really kind of grim numbers that total album sales are down 15% in 2007. And that's even including a rise in sales of digital albums. So, I mean, the CD is on its way out. I think if you don't believe that, you really just have your head in the sand. But the <laughs> yeah. question that leads to for me is, does the album go out the door with it? Have things moved so thoroughly to single digital tracks that people will just no longer pay nine ninety nine with iTunes or what have you for a collection of songs. Or, Jason, you could argue, have things reverted to such a point historically that people are only going to buy one or perhaps two songs at a time. Because let's not forget, for the first 15 years of rock and roll, people bought 45s. Yeah, and I, I think that's a great point. I think a lot of people who grew up in the, the album era seem to regard that as the way things have always been. But you're, yeah, you're absolutely right. It, it's not true. I mean, that may turn out to be kind of uh, an anomaly in the history of popular music with you know, singles and EPs having ruled the land once upon a time, and maybe their time is back. But you, you had a, you know, an era basically of 30 years where the album was king. This was a $16 billion a year business in 1999, and then things started going downhill. Now, is it a case, Jason, that you feel that maybe people are being conditioned to once again seek out individual tracks by the fact that that's really what's most readily available on the Internet? I mean, is it just a matter of conditioning, or is it a quality issue? You know, I think it's a lot of things. I mean, I had a line in the column that, you know, figuring out who killed the album is kind of like the reverse of Clue. It's, yeah. it's easier to figure out who didn't kill the album. Yeah, It seems like we, we live in an era where music doesn't command the place it once had in a lot of people's lives. But that said, I think it's also true that there's been a lot of consumer dissatisfaction with the album. You talk to a lot of consumers, and they'll say... Well, albums are a ripoff. There's usually only two or three good songs, and the rest is filler. Or they'll say, 
why is it that a CD at list price is often, you know, you often pay more for a soundtrack of a movie than you do for the DVD of the movie? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Once people had a chance to reject the album by going track by track in the digital age, uh, they did it. It's interesting, though, that vinyl sales are up 15%. Very small percentage of the market, but there still seems to be a core of people, of music lovers out there, who do value the album and, and do want it. And thank goodness they do, too. I mean, it's no fun when something becomes so monolithic that there's only one medium here. Yeah. Um, I think part of what's driving that also is that there are a lot of people who still just reject digital music out of hand. They say that you know it's lossy, the sound quality is just not there and they're sticking with the CD or even going back to vinyl. We're talking to Jason Fry of the Wall Street Journal Online, who wrote, I think, one of the most cogent arguments yet for moving beyond the album. The one thing I thought that was missing was, uh, let's look at the definition of album itself. I mean, album in the photographic sense is a collection of a bunch of pictures, right? right. You know, and, and certainly people are still doing that, even if they're only buying or you know, downloading illegally individual tracks by artists at a time, they're making playlists. They're yep. making their own albums. Absolutely. I think there's something philosophically about the idea of a hour-long or 45-minute-long collection of music. It just seems like about the right time, the way a 30-minute sitcom seems like just about all you want to spend with Frasier. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's, it's funny. I was one of the, these kids who just labored over mixtapes. But making a playlist in jukebox software is just such a dream compared to that painstaking stopping and starting of making tapes and duplicating them. Yeah, well, the process is evolving, Jason, and that's one of the points your column makes. You uh, referenced this uh, blog of Mark Cuban, the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, the NBA uh, team, and also the chairman of HDNet uh, Cable Network, who weighs in frequently on issues involving the entertainment industry. And he, one of the things he's suggesting in his blog is that instead of putting out albums, artists should think about releasing series of songs on their websites. And uh, you seem to think that's a pretty good idea, I take it. I think it's a wonderful idea. You know, bands just don't seem to have the same hold on listeners they once did. It used to be, you know, you, you sold a, a platinum or a gold record that at least gave you something of a track record for the next one. And that seems to be gone now. And I think, you know, knowing that, it would really be in bands' interest to to not do the kind of musical crop rotation of, you know, album, tour, I follow and get in trouble, but to um, you know to really stay out there in people's minds, and I think it would be a great way to do that by you know not simply releasing an album and then going away for a while, but trying to have more of a steady stream of releases and just kind of staying in fans' minds. Well, we've been talking to Jason Fry, columnist for the Wall Street Journal Online and closet mixtape master. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for coming on the show, Jason. Hey, thanks for having me. That's a little bit of powerhouse sound, a new band with a new record called Oslo Chicago Breaks. Members include Ken Vandermark, a world-renowned jazz saxophonist, the winner of a MacArthur Genius Grant a few years ago, Jeff Parker and John Herndon, members of the Chicago avant-garde pop band Tortoise, and Nate McBride, who's played with numerous jazz ensembles over the last decade, a veritable all-star quartet blurring the lines between jazz, rock, and the avant-garde. They're doing some really fascinating things with music, and we thought we'd have them in the studio, Jim, for a, an interview and a live performance. Well, just getting them on the same continent is an accomplishment, Greg, but we got them all at the same place, same time, at the Jim and K. Maybe studio. 
Welcome, gentlemen. Hey, thanks, yes. man. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. So between the four of you, uh, we were joking probably in about 100 bands, <laughs> conservatively, over the course of your distinguished career. Still young guys, but in terms of the number of bands you've been in, it's a, it's a lifetime's worth of experience. Uh, Ken, I was just looking up your uh, the number of bands you were in, and I, was, I lost count around 3940. Uh, <laughs> and I believe in, in 2007 alone, uh, your name was attached to about a dozen records of various incarnations. Uh, I didn't even know that. Including Powerhouse Sound. Mm. How did you get the four of you guys in a room together to play and actually record a record because you're so busy? What was the, what was the genesis for, for getting this band together? Well, it's, it's complicated because everyone is really busy, but um, I'm really happy that there's a commitment to trying to find a way to work together despite the scheduling issues. Initially, the group was organized around musicians that I knew in Oslo, and we were able to do a studio project with that lineup, but it wasn't possible to do anything else besides that. And I was very interested um, in continuing, and Nate, who was in the first version of the group, um, also wanted to continue to work with the music and try to find a way to to perform it. And luckily, Jeff and, and John were also interested in trying it out. So it's it's taken some time to get the thing moving off the ground in a way because the material was more complicated to execute than I had meant to, <laughs> had meant it to be. But um, I think that right now the way the group is working is really fantastic. Ken, just briefly, can you tell us what was the goal? Because as Greg referred to, you are a promiscuous man, <laughs> as all jazz musicians are. What was the particular goal with this group and this project? Well, I really like rock music and funk and reggae, and uh, there have been projects I've done, also with Nate, actually, uh, dealt with those kinds of sources, and I miss being able to work with them. And there was a lot of music I was hearing that I didn't like so much in those kinds of categories that were being made. And rather than kind of feel frustrated about that, I thought it would be more productive to try to make some music the way I'd want to hear it. Mm. So that was really the motivation. And then it was like trying to deal with a lot of music that I find started something, particularly Miles Davis's electric groups, which I think are incredible. And there's so many things that he kind of indicated that I don't think were picked up a lot. You know, definitely people have been highly influenced by those groups. But it was a way I thought of maybe working with that kind of approach to the music and integrating some other styles of play, like, the let's say, reggae as, as a good example. So could there be a Davis-like jazz rock fusion that wasn't Weather Report? Yeah. I, for my taste, that's kind of what I was thinking of, because there's mm. so much creativity in what he was doing with that music and the kind of way that I'm interested in playing, a lot of freedom in the music and a lot of challenge in the music. And uh, for this group, that was really, I don't even want to say confrontational, but really trying to push things, what we could do and how we could play and the input of, of Jeff, John, and Nate in terms of how do we develop the music, how do we execute it, has been really crucial because their backgrounds are huge, and they know tons of stuff about these kinds of music that I don't know, or they're coming at it from a different angle, and that amount of background that we share in the group really has helped shape it into something that I'm really, really passionate about. Mm. There's a lot of controversy in that period of Miles Davis that you're talking about, that 70s, those 70s records. People are still arguing about those records and <laughs> whether they're they <laughs> legitimate music or not. Uh, Miles lost the plot when he started doing those kind of music. You know, that yeah. was his version of the Sly Stone, and uh, <laughs> wow, he took it somewhere completely different. Well, that's what I find so funny about the arguments against that music he was doing from jazz purists, let's say, mm-hmm. is it's clearly 
Well, that, that he sold out. Like, that was the big complaint. Oh, Miles sold out. You know, he's, he's gone commercial. That is not commercial music. I mean, that's yeah. super avant-garde, mm-hmm. you know, futuristic funk or yeah. something. I don't even know what you would call it. And if you listen to On the Corner and you think that's a commercial concession, you're on drugs. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of what the four people in this room are about is uh, you're not so concerned about boundaries. Like, oh, it's, we're not really playing jazz, or you're playing rock, or it's avant-garde. Curious, there, there, there are people out there in the world who really get in umbrage about this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But, Jeff, let me ask you. I mean, you're a classically trained guitar player. You went to Berklee College of Music. You're, you were kind of uh, around that New York scene for a little bit, which is considered like the epicenter of jazz in the world uh, to this day. And yet you moved to Chicago and you stayed here. Was it because of that kind of uh, attitude that you found in Chicago where you could sort of blur some of these boundaries a little bit more? Is that why you're here? Or? Yeah, pretty much. I actually moved here kind of with the intention of it being a stopover on my way to New York. But, I mean, I met a lot of musicians here who just had a kind of broader conception of, like, dealing with music. And I ended up doing a lot of cool stuff that I was into, so... I just stuck around. I'm curious about the atmosphere that is required for something like that. Are there forces out there that are making this kind of music difficult to play, you know, in terms of audience, in terms of media attention? People like their categories. There's still a heavy-duty jazz scene in New York City, but there are certain clubs in New York City or or certain clubs in Chicago even that a band like this wouldn't be allowed in because what you guys technically do isn't jazz enough uh, (laughs) for them, you know? Well... I mean, I kind of think that luckily, just from a lot of the other stuff that we've been involved in over the years, we've kind of cultivated our little collective audiences, you know. And it seems like just from the other creative projects we've been in, I think a lot of the audience, they just view it as another weird thing that, like... <laughs> that, that those guys doing. are doing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I mean, that brings up... Well, a, let's hear some of this weird thing, yeah, huh? Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's, play, let's play, and then we'll talk some more. Tell us briefly, Ken, about this piece you're going to launch into. It's a collage of two pieces, one called Shockley, which is not surprisingly uh, dedicated to Hank Shockley. Of uh, the Bomb Squad, yeah, production who, team for Public Enemy. fantastic producer. And um, a piece called Broken Numbers, which is the newest addition to the book of tunes that we've, we've done. Excellent. Powerhouse Sound on Sound Opinions.
That was Shockley Broken Numbers from Powerhouse Sound on Sound Opinions. In a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, Powerhouse Sound will continue with their performance and their interview, and later it's my turn to add a track to the Desert Island Jukebox. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Greg Cott. My partner is Jim DeRogatis, and you've been listening to our conversation with members of the ensemble Powerhouse Sound, Ken Vandermark, Jeff Parker, John Herndon, and Nate McBride. I am a big jazz fan, but I can totally understand how rock and roll fans may not appreciate jazz, and I would include my partner, Jim DeRogatis, in that group. Well, you know, I've confessed this to you uh, before, Ken. I'm I am a jazzophobic. Yes, not ashamed to admit that. I always figure that when I'm like retired, sixty five, seventy, I will deal with jazz then. You know, I have my ten <laughs> CD Coltrane collection, and that's basically it. Because I'm not mature enough now to understand jazz. But I got to say, if there's one detriment to me in in liking jazz, it's always the rhythms. John Herndon over here. It struck me, and it strikes me when I listen to the record that. Ironically, you are playing more rock rhythms in Powerhouse Sound, sort of, than in your other band, which Jeff is a member of, Tortoise. Um, well, this I think this band and a lot of the groups that are playing in the improvised music scene these days are dealing more with sound than genres, really specifically. You know, um, a lot, most of the people I know are fans of like a lot of what you might consider classic jazz, you know, like Coltrane or Miles or Charlie Parker, but also some Slayer records, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's just kind of like the lines were were broken a long time ago and I think we're just kind of part of the link in that chain. You know, along with the idea of rhythm here, you, you talked about this being music that's sort of built up from the bass lines, Ken, and I wanted to ask Nate McBride a little bit about that because some of this music, uh, dub, funk, can easily be abused. And also, you know, I think one of the <laughs> criticisms of, of, of sort of the whole fusion thing mm. was that there was this sort of show-off equality to it. Yeah. Slap bass solos <laughs> and, you know... And you know, We're watching trying to get Nate to do that. But yeah, <laughs> well, I, I tried to throw it in there for I'm, a second. But, yeah, and right. I'm curious about the approach to that. There's definitely not that quality to this group. Not that you guys can't play, but it seems to be something that's not present in the group. And I'm, I was curious about your approach mm-hmm. to this kind of bass-centric music, about mm-hmm. your how it's influenced your style and how you came up with your style. Yeah, well, it's. I think it's important to think about 
the direction that each tune is coming from as being maybe different in each case. You know, we've got tunes that sort of come out of more of a dub direction, tunes where the bass lines are definitely rock bass lines, and other ones that are more funk in the vein of like Funkadelic or, or even Sly Stone sometimes. So I'm someone who listens to all that music and uh, appreciates how simple and direct the bass playing is in a lot of that stuff. And when I'm trying to channel some of that energy, I'm thinking more in terms of how elemental it can be and how simple and forceful it can be, rather than how many notes I can fit into it or, or trying to be Jocko. I used <laughs> to be interested in trying to be Jocko, but <laughs> I've gotten over that. <laughs> Jocko Pistorius, well-known yeah, show-off. Yeah. Exactly. You're all uh, listeners, uh, fans, I think, the amount of music you listen to. For example, if you go on Ken's website, you'll find you got a top 10 of stuff that you've been listening to like in the last week or so. How do you process that kind of music and not necessarily become just a copyist? Like, oh, that's really cool. I want to do a record just like, you know, Anthony Braxton, or I want to do a record just like Sly Stone. How do you develop your own voice in, in continuing to listen to this wide variety of music and not just sort of lift things from here and there and, and turn it into a pastiche? Well, well, for me, it's a combination of things. Uh, one you know, I'll hear things that I really love and try to figure out how it's done. And usually I get it wrong, and so it gets deflected that way. And the other thing is that maybe connected to that, I'm not so interested in the details in what makes, let's say, Curtis Mayfield's bass line sound so great. It's more the gesture involved. I was just mentioning to, to Jeff about Curtis Mayfield's bass lines, the way that they have maybe an elliptical quality that always has a forward momentum and they don't feel like they could they ever stop they could just go on forever and so it, it makes complete sense not to have these categories and boundaries because the elements let's say in public enemy that i find fascinating may be particular to me but lead to a way of working in this band that that i can identify it and make sense of the way that i see us working is very organic and natural and part of a tradition of disintegrating categories and boundaries. And the problem is everybody, in a, it's human nature to try to, to break things down and try to understand them. But we're in a period now where all the categories that made sense that people still use that are like 30 years old, they use them to discuss music. And we're in a period where a lot of those things don't make sense. Mm -hmm. So to me, what we're doing, that's the history of music, is finding new ways to do things and not classify it and not, yeah, not become dogmatic about how it should be done. We're talking to Powerhouse Sound here on Sound Opinions. John Herndon, Nate McBride, Ken Vandermark, and Jeff Parker. Um, let's hear more from Powerhouse Sound on Sound Opinions. Thank you. 
That was an awesome noise, guys. Powerhouse Sound on Sound Opinions. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Thanks for having us. To hear Powerhouse Sound's complete performance and to check out some live tracks from other guests, visit soundopinions.org. We'll be back after a short break on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with a review of the indie buzz band Vampire Weekend and soul singer Van Hunt.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is a song called In the Southern Shade from an artist named Van Hunt. It's from a new album called Popular that you uh, may or may not hear in the near future. (laughs) That record may not be coming out. Why are we reviewing it? Well, review copies of this record were sent to every uh, major critic in the United States over the last few weeks. As well as us. And there are songs available on VanHunt'sMySpace.com page. But in the last few days... Van Hunt announced that he had severed ties with his label and he was uncertain whether this album would ever come out. The backstory here is that Van Hunt is one of the most respected singer-songwriters in R&B. 30-year-old native of Ohio, now based in Atlanta, started out his career about a decade ago as a songwriter for hire, writing hits for people like Dion Ferris, Joy, Cree Summer, Rashawn Patterson, then eventually putting out his first solo album in 2004, a follow-up in 2006. He's won a Grammy Award, was acclaimed as sort of a disciple of Sly Stone and Prince, a songwriter who is uh, develop- very much developing his own voice, covered Iggy Pop and the Stooges yeah. on his last record. So this is a guy who's blowing out the parameters of R&B as we know it. Certainly one of the most individual and distinctive voices in R&B in the last five years. And as we said, just completed his third record called Popular, ready to go, ready to come out, and then he severed ties with his label, Blue Note. The backstory here, Jim, with Blue Note is that its parent company, Capital EMI, we've been reporting on this in Sound Opinions for the last few months, is in big trouble. They just laid off 2,000 employees. They are dropping bands and artists left and right, including Van Hunt now, it appears. We have seen this happen before. Records get sent out to critics, they're ready to go, and then at the last minute, the plug gets pulled, and who knows if they will ever see the light of day. We've seen examples of this with Prince in the 1980s. We've seen this with Sheryl Crow on her debut album for A&M Records. We've seen this with the Butthole Surfers with their last record for Capitol Records. Eventually, some or all of that music may resurface. It could be years later. It may not happen at all. We'll see what happens with Van Hunt and Popular. Let's hear a track from that record right now, though. Turn my TV on from Van Hunt from his new record called Popular on Sound Opinions. Company 
Oh, man. Great stuff. Turn My TV On by Van Hunt from his third album. Greg, it kills me every time he gets to that line. He's so scared to go outside, he stays at home with his underwear on. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think it's worth mentioning that he grew up in a pretty tough surrounding. He, he was the kind of guy who stayed in his bedroom and played music mm-hmm. and found that as his way out of the ghetto. I think... One of the things that sets him aside from a Lenny Kravitz, because, you know, you have to say, Van Hunt's not reinventing the wheel. There's a lot of prints in that song, and the bass line is lifted pretty much uh, verbatim from that song by The Fix, One Thing Leads to Another. Yeah. <laughs> you catch that, right? So he's not reinventing the wheel. He's working in a very familiar style, but he's got this great sense of humor. He's just got good taste, you know? He steals from the right places. He mixes it all up. Who else would put prints together with The Fix, you know what I mean? And he's got funny lines like that. I I love this record to pieces. I think it's it's nothing short of a tragedy if it doesn't come out. Well, it's his best record yet. That's the thing. I mean, he got a lot of acclaim for those first two records. I think this is a step above those. I think it's a brave record. It's very lean, very sparse. The production on this is, compared to what most R&B passes for, the lushness of it, yeah. you listen to this, it's jarring. And I think EMI slash Blue Note got scared. They said, where's the hits on this record? We, we can't put this out. It's not going to sell. And it's a shame because I think he's developing his voice as an artist. He still has some of those Prince Sly Stone influences, but I hear more of Van Hunt in this record than I hear of any of his previous ones. Those those influences are becoming part of the background scenery, and, and, and Van Hunt's individuality, his voice is starting to emerge. So I see him as a, an artist on the rise, and it would be a tragedy if this record doesn't come out. It's one of the best records so far this year. I mean, it's early. <laughs> now you, me... It's February. Every year you get a little... Next year, you're going to like be saying the best album of 2009, you're going to name it in November. I have to say, Jim, it was I was dumbstruck when I'd been listening to this record for about a week, and every time I listened to it, I go, wow, that's really cool. This is better than I thought it was. Because I time... kept telling you you had to listen to it because we were going to review it on the show. Jim, would you like me to say you were right? Yes. You were right. Okay. Once, once. All right. You're Mark right. this down, Sound Opinion staff. This is it for 2008. But I was dumbstruck then to read on his blog that the record's not coming out. EMI's not putting it out. And I thought, unbelievable. Why is this happening? Well, especially the language, Greg. This is what he wrote. Popular is not on its way to the store. It's sitting in a box in my flat in L.A. on half-inch reels. <laughs> you know, And I was like, God, that's heartbreaking. We... Rate things on buy it, burn it, trash it. We would love to tell you to buy it. You can't really do it. But keep an eye on the web because I bet you any money if Van Hunt is smart, he's going to float this on the Internet soon. Well, you can hear some songs right now on his MySpace.com page, MySpace.com slash Van Hunt. Go there and listen to some tracks from this record right now and encourage his label or whatever label uh, picks him up to, to get this thing out right away. Cape Cod, Kwasa Kwasa, from a band called Vampire Weekend. 
If you have not heard of them yet, you uh, you just don't read about music because there have been 17,000 articles <laughs> written in the last week about this group from New York. They describe their sound as Upper West Side Soweto. Yes, that's why you heard a little bit of Paul Simon in that. They are a quartet that formed at Columbia University, got their start playing at what passes for frat parties up at Columbia. They're called literary societies, don't you know, Greg? <laughs> These guys are getting a lot of attention. They are the indie rave of the moment. They made a lot of noise at the CMJ Music Marathon, put out an EP first called The Mansard Roof, and now they have followed up with a self-titled album. Let's play a track from that and give our thoughts about Vampire Weekend. This is a song called A-Punk by Vampire Weekend on Sound Opinions. A-Punk from the self-titled debut album from Vampire Weekend. Uh, Jim, when I was reading about this album, as uh, anybody who scans the music blogs had to over the last years, I was convinced it was going to sound like Graceland 2, Paul Simon's mid-'80s fusion of Western pop and African rhythm. And when I actually sat down and listened to the record, I'm going, huh? I mean, there's a few references here to African music. I mean, the song Cape Cod Kwasa Kwasa that we played at the start, I mean, that's Congolese dance music, and they're doing their version of it. There's a sort of a lame attempt at doing some Ladysmith Black Mambazo vocal yeah. harmonies <laughs> on another song called One, Blake's Got a New Face. Blake's Got a New Face They are eclectic in terms of the kind of rhythms they're drawing on, and I give them credit for not just sort of relying on that kind of sludgy indie rock backbeat. They are going a little bit outside of their realm of expertise and finding some rhythms that are a little more agile. What they remind me of, though, is one of those preppy new wave bands from the late 70s, early 80s, very steeped in early talking heads, 
some feelies rhythms there. They've got don't, those, don't insult the feelies. But they've got those clean, shattering guitar lines, and they've got those very agile, rhythmic things going on underneath. I actually like the pleasantness of this record. It's very breezy, very easy <laughs> to listen to. But I, I do think it's been killed by the hype. I think so oh. many people have been talking about this record so long. And to my mind, it's just a pleasant, breezy little record that will be forgotten about in about a year's time. I intensely dislike this record, Greg. I don't think that I'm ever going to forget it because it is just so obnoxious. I'm not going to be able to get it out of why, my brain. Why do you think it's obnoxious, though? Well, the lyrical references to Cape Cod. Well, let's look at Cape Cod Quasa Quasa. In that song alone, they are name, name-checking Louis Vuitton, Benetton, Peter Gabriel, kind of tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, he stole from you know different rhythms, too. My musical argument against this band can be summed up as they are kind of the... Uh, embodiment of indie rock's response to Sasha Frere Jones' very controversial piece a couple of months back in The New Yorker where he was saying that there is no soul, there is no black rhythm in indie rock today. So these guys went and they stole every black rhythm they could find, from <laughs> Caribbean to, to Soweto, Afropop, you name it. Try to do a little funk in that very white boy collegiate way that the Talking Heads did. All right, that's my musical complaint. But the lyrics, my God, they have a song on here called Oxford comma, which is about the English Oxford University way of of listing items in, in a sentence uh, separated by commas. They wrote a song about that, Greg. But it's, you know, they I do it in a... I hate this record. They it do it in a very... They are, they're preppy guys, and I, I think they almost poke fun at it. They're, in their first video, they're, they're seen lounging on a yacht, you know, and it's almost like they're making fun of themselves. I don't see them as taking this all that seriously. Yeah, they're Ivy Leaguers, you know. <laughs> I mean, what are they going to do? They really don't have anything to say. The songs are kind of clever, but they're not, I, I would say Simon is much more pretentious lyrically than these guys. I think yeah, but they, a, you know, to mention Peter Gabriel, they're not even in the same universe. Even, even that, they were sort of saying, you know, we're not that. You know, people are sort of lumping us in with this world beat stuff. Well, and they're right, they're right. We realize we're not that. We're they not are that right. Good. They, they are not that. They are not nearly that good on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale. I am going to have to go with a trash it for this Vampire Weekend I, album. I think it's a perfectly pleasant pop record that has been overhyped. It's a burn it record. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible, we like to take a trip to the desert island and pick a track we cannot live without. And this week, it's Jim DeRogatis' turn. Greg, we've seen a lot of reference to the Talking Heads in recent years in indie rock. Clap your hands, say yeah, tapes and tapes, and now Vampire Weekend. I'm going to play a track by the Talking Heads in which they began to incorporate African rhythms, and they did it right. Musically, it's fascinating, Life During Wartime, the track produced by Brian Eno. They're incorporating a funk bass line, and and about two-thirds of the way through the song, these uh, layers of percussion begin to build, and it's that African polyrhythmic tribal drumming. It's the very beginning of that sound coming into their music, because it would explode on the next two albums, Remain in Light and Stop Making Sense, both heavily influenced by Fela Kute. But at this point, they were still that band from art school in Rhode Island that were making a transition from a very kind of minimalistic punk rock into this world beat groove that was just uniquely Talking Heads. I'd like to see Vampire Weekend do something as original as Talking Heads. I mean, Talking Heads got to a point, I think, with this third album where you could only say they made 
Talking Heads music. This is a great song. It's about race riots coming down on Houston, Detroit, and Pittsburgh, and, and a sort of panic setting in, in which you're stocking up, you're getting peanut butter, you don't think you're going to be able to go out on the streets, and you've got to like hoard your food, and uh, all hell is coming down. This ain't no party, this ain't no disco, this ain't no fooling around. I don't know if people have ever heard that and really thought about what David Byrne is singing about, much less thought about all the different musical influences rhythmically that are happening on this song. I think it's absolutely one of the Talking Heads' best. It's Life During Wartime from Fear of Music on Sound Opinions.
Talking Heads, Life During Wartime, my Desert Island jukebox track. Greg, what do we got on the show next week? Jim, next week we've got an interview with one of the most fascinating new artists out there, the sample-based composer Greg Gillis, a.k.a. Girl Talk. Got some thank yous to say, Greg. Powerhouse Sound was recorded by Mary Gaffney and Sarah Toulouse. Our loyal production team is, as always, Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, and intern Dave Mahler. And our fearless leader and executive producer is, of course, Tori Southside Malatia, a man who knows his Louis Vuitton and his Benetton. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. New messages. Hey, Jim and Greg. This is Andy Collins from Yosemite National Park, California, and I just wanted to say... Good job once again on the Unsung Heroes show. I was actually listening to it and thinking, oh, man, I really hope they talk about John Paul Jones. And then, sure enough, he was the next guy you mentioned. I, I got to say that Out on the Tiles, I think, is his best bass line. Just that there's something about both the riff that he plays and also the tone that he has. I imagine if a 200-year-old oak tree could play bass, that it would sound like his bass does on that track. Thanks again for putting on a great show. I listen every week as to a bunch of my other park ranger friends up here in the woods. And I uh, can't wait to hear what you guys come up with next. Bye. Hi, guys. Uh, this is Cliff Edders. I just wanted to, uh, I'm from Chicago, Illinois, and I wanted to comment on the music and food episode. wanted to, uh, having grown up in the South, let you know that Hope salad is indeed real. It's uh, kind of a leafy green uh, that grows above ground, much like a turnip green. And the dangerous thing about it is that uh, the stem and roots are poisonous. Uh, I could kind of see how poke salad Annie could be a little bit of a dangerous woman to know. Good job on the food and music episode, and I like listening to you guys every week. Hi, guys. I thought it was a great show tonight on food and music, and I'm listening to it on my way home from work, and it's making me hungry already. There was one song I want to suggest that wasn't put in. Great song by Michael Franti and Spearhead, Red Beans and Rice. It always makes me think about my mom's Red Beans and Rice. Red Beans and Rice, Red Beans and Rice, Red Beans and Rice, I could eat a plate twice. Red Beans and Rice, Red Beans and Rice, Red Beans and Rice. Keep it up. Love the show. My name is Andrew Southwick. I live in Springfield, Illinois. Listen to WUIS. Thanks. Hi, this is Leslie from Minneapolis. Just calling to say thank you so much for the great show on food and music this morning. I was actually trying to put together a menu and music for a Moroccan dinner when the show aired, and I had forgotten Chef Bourdain was going to be on. I've 
had his quote about uh, the dead and Billy Joel on my refrigerator since it printed in uh, Food and Wine years ago. Just wanted to say thanks again for a great show. You really got my day off to a great start. Thank you. Hi, Greg and Jim. This is Kevin Irvine calling from the Albany Park neighborhood of Chicago. Love the uh, show on music and food, which are two of my passions as well. The band and the album that I think really represents that topic so well is Chibomato and their record, Viva La Woman. And Chibomato, as you know, means food crazy or food madness. And the entire record is just songs that have food either as a subject or an analogy. The song that I think was the best food song on the record, though, and the song that really um, just sets a whole different mood is White Pepper Ice Cream. White Pepper Ice Cream. It's like a blind drawing. Thanks again, and I love the show. Keep it up. Hi, my name is Matthew Fitzgerald. I'm a glass blower at the Contemporary Studio of Glass Art, and I use music to help me get through long nights of intense heat. It's a different type of cooking, but I consider it cooking when you're working with the flame over 2,000 degrees. Music is great inspiration for playing with fire. No more messages. To give us your opinion on sound opinions, call our hotline 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.